Hey, everybody. This is Phil Town. This is Danielle Town. And welcome to the Invested Podcast. We're here to talk about how to invest like, you know, the best investors in the world. Charlie Munger, Warren Buffett, um, people who are investing using a very specific strategy where you're focused on really a couple of basic simple things that we're talking about that when you unpack them turn out to be full of possible minds to step on. But <laughs> <laughs> that's true, dad. <laughs> <laughs> the basic things are very, very basic. You buy a company when you have a very high degree of confidence that that company is going to be worth more than you paid for it in about 10 years. And that's just a fundamental criteria. And then figuring out how to know that that's the case, that's, you know, that's kind of where the rubber meets the road. Yeah, exactly. And last time we talked about the broader market in general. Uh, we talked about how afraid we should be. And we talked about what people should be doing who are currently invested in the market, um, and how to prepare for what's happening with this market. And then we wrapped up talking about psychology and what the psychology of being an investor is. So today we wanted to talk about some behavioral economics, which is a fancy word or a fancy phrase, but really just means like the reality of how we behave as investors. That's how I think of it. I don't even think of it. I don't even have a clue. It's, it's some guys who have been writing about, <laughs> about the guys. psychology of <laughs> About the psychology Behavioral of- economics is only this like incredibly fast growing popular field in general <laughs> social science. <laughs> I don't I want to appear I don't want to appear completely ignorant here, but I, I've only read one book by anybody that's connected with behavioral science. Well, two. I read Kahneman's Thinking Fast or Slow, and I read Lewis's book whose title I've just forgotten completely. What's his what's his you mean, new book? You called? mean Michael Lewis's book? Yeah, Michael Lewis. Yeah. So Michael Lewis, who wrote uh, Moneyball and Liar's Poker and basically every other book that everybody has liked for the last 20 years. I have it right in front of me. It's called The Undoing Project, a friendship that changed our minds. And it's about these two guys, these two psychologists actually, who discovered that the field of psychology was not really uh, the right spot for their ideas. What they were looking at were how people actually behaved instead of ideas about how people behaved. And they found that the psychology field really didn't uh, reflect very well on them. Like they were not particularly liked. And so they sort of leaned more towards economics where they became very liked because their ideas were so useful to people trying to figure out and predict, as we do as investors, they were trying to predict how people would behave. And so their work has now become really just a massive phenomenon. And this book that Michael Lewis wrote was pretty interesting because it's about kind of how they met and their beginning origin story and how they became friends and started working together and developed this brand new field of behavioral economics. Yeah, I, I I really like what they had to say, and I really like the story that Michael Lewis tells. He's a he's a really good writer, right? He's a gifted storyteller. Um, and then at the end, we kind of come to some interesting conclusions. Now, first off, let me say that Danny Kahneman, Amos Tversky, died um, of cancer in the early two thousands, and so he was not awarded the Nobel Prize with Kahneman because 
they only award, award it to people who are alive. And Kahneman got the prize, and, uh, and it's really for both of them. But he got so the these Nobel are, Prize. These are the two guys who are featured in Michael Lewis's book, right. who are the two sort of fathers of behavioral economics. And I think it's Kahneman. I don't know how to say Tversky. Is that right? I'm guessing. Okay, I'm so thinking, we're guessing on the pronunciation. Yeah. Don't hold it to it. Don't hold us to it, guys. So yeah, Kahneman, Kahneman. won the Nobel Prize for this stuff. Yeah, so I'm going to argue with him, but <laughs> okay, <laughs> of course. But right I'm going to lose. Before we started, I said, "Dad, you're not an expert in this, and neither am I. Let's not like go too far beyond our field." And he was like, "Okay, okay." <laughs> now I'm going to argue with him. So the thing that makes Kahneman very, very interesting, and what got him the Nobel Prize, is that he took on the deeply embedded psychological notion that human beings act rationally. Yeah. And this is this is fundamental to so many different fields in, in the really expectations. Is. And in fact, one of the fields is the the field of economics where, you know, Adam Smith starts off about a million years ago with the basic idea that, you know, human beings are going to act in their own self-interest. And by that he meant rationally act in their own self-interest. Yeah. And that's fundamental to the whole idea of capitalism. Well, it's fundamental to our whole view of who we are individually as people. If you asked any one of us, do you act rationally? We would say, of course I act rationally. And we all do. Yeah. And what what um, Kahneman and Tversky found is that our method of acting rationally from the outside is not rational, but from the inside is entirely rational. It, it's based on our own experiences. It's based on what we see happening in the world. So from like inside our heads, it's rational, but from outside, it's completely not. Yeah, which means inside which our heads is why we all keep wrong. doing it, right? Yeah, I mean, it means we're, we're, I mean, I think if I understand you right, they're they're essentially saying that we are not acting rationally all the time. That we right. have stuff going on inside our heads <clears throat> that we don't consider, you know, it's sort of beyond consideration. It's sort of sort of like a meme or something. It's it's built in there like genetics, and you can't, you don't really realize you're you're using it when you're using it. And if you looked at it objectively, you'd realize you're acting irrationally, but you don't. And I, it's it, the thing that's fundamentally important about Kahneman Kahneman is that the idea of efficient market hypothesis, that is how all of your mutual funds are managed, how all of the pension funds are managed, how every advisor in America is trained to operate, and how the SEC requires they operate, is all based on efficient market hypothesis. And that is based entirely on the notion that people will act rationally in their own self-interest, including your fund manager. And because that's true, people will not sell you a stock for $100 that's worth $200, and they won't buy one from you for $200 if it's only worth $100. They're just not going to do it. And so because of that, it makes sense that if people are going to operate rationally, that prices are equal to values in the market, as best anybody can can figure. And so when Kahneman comes in or Kahneman comes in here and starts arguing that, no, no, we're proving over a 30-year period of time that people don't operate like that at all. And most importantly, I thought, is the fact that they operate less rationally the more pressure they are under. They see oh, less and less of, of, of reality and operate off of anchors and, and all sorts of emotional biases 
<clears throat> that they don't realize are even there. And so when we're trying to figure out why would an individual investor who's a school teacher and has no economics background, why would that person ever expect that they could do better than a fund manager who's trained at Harvard Business School and then went to Goldman Sachs and is now running a fund and is brilliant? Why would that person ever expect he could do better or she could do better than that fund manager? And the answer is that, as is basically what Buffett and Munger have been saying for 50 or 60 years, is you if you are able to act rationally inside your circle of competence, it doesn't matter how small that circle is, if you can operate rationally within that, you can absolutely beat these guys who are operating off of false uh, numbering systems, false math, bad theory, and acting as if they're rational when they're not. So it's pretty important stuff that he's come out and actually proven it sufficiently to get a Nobel Prize. Now, here's, yeah. where, here's, where, here's where the wheels come off the car a little bit with Kahneman, is that Kahneman believes in efficient market hypothesis. So how does he believe in that <laughs> he just how does thinks, he believe in efficient market hypothesis and literally have come up with the idea that people behave as though everything is rational and normal all the time even when it's not well i think what he's done is he's made the same error that the economists have made for the last 50 years and that is he looking he's looking at audited portfolios from professional investors and discovering mm -hmm. that almost none of them beat the market. So you're sort of arguing from, from the effect back to the cause, right? You say, wow, these are really smart people and almost none of them ever beat the market. And if they ever looked at what they're, what they're doing, they would realize they can't. And that's the basis of efficient market hypothesis. And he, I think he even takes it farther. I think he's saying literally, it doesn't matter about a risk adjusted portfolio that the effect of efficient market hypothesis to say that you can try to take more risk if you want to, but it's still not going to let you beat the market. More risk, theoretically, to get a higher reward, the risk factor will bring you right back to where the market is. So there's no way to beat the market. You, you cannot take higher risk and get a higher reward over the long run. Is Are you saying that he accepts the assumption that a higher reward requires more risk? Um, no, I think he's, I think he's basically saying in the market, there's no way to get a higher reward, period. You can't beat the market. Regardless no of risk. Yeah. Regardless of risk. He said anybody that is beating the market is just lucky. He actually, actually states that in his book. So he rejects the risk equals volatility part of it. Um, no, um, he doesn't reject that out straight out. It's just that if risk equals volatility, that the actual movement of volatility is going to ultimately be neutral and bring you back to the market uh, rate of hmm. return. Hmm. Just got it. So you you know unless you somehow know how to. I mean, here's the the basic thing about efficient market hypothesis that is is uh, hard even for those guys to to, to grasp is that. All of the potential upside of Google is built into today's stock price, and all of the potential downside of, uh, I don't know, Valiant or something, some company that's going horribly downhill, all of that's baked into the price today, too. So at any given moment, the potential of any stock, it doesn't matter how volatile it is, doesn't matter how risky it is, 
all of the potential future that any human being can rationally understand is already baked into its price. And therefore, it is absolutely a 50-50 coin toss about whether it's going to go up or down. And that's why it doesn't matter if you're adding more volatility to your portfolio, it shouldn't create a higher rate of return. So, so Tversky, and, well, Kahneman anyway, is basically saying, look, I'm looking at the results of all of these people trying to beat the market and they don't beat the market. Therefore, the market's not beatable. Therefore, efficient market hypothesis is true. But his own theory of human behavior shows why it's possible that it's not true. It doesn't say it's not true. It just tells me that it's possible that if people are acting particularly under pressure, irrationally, then everything Buffett and Munger is saying is right, that in certain circumstances, the market is going to misprice stocks. And when you're there available with your cash, when that happens, you can get good deals. It's that simple. <clears throat> so anyway, that's Kahneman. And well, and then there's another major, major figure in this world, which is Richard Thaler, who wrote a book called Misbehaving. And he is, I believe he started out as an economist instead of as a psychologist. And then he discovered this field of psychology affecting economics. And uh, he says, and Lewis quotes him as saying, thinking about this stuff was way more interesting than doing economics. And basically, he just started looking for things that people did that were stupid and started writing them down. <laughs> and then and then he tried to figure out why people did stupid stuff. So it's stuff like, and I've done this, we've all done this. It's stuff like you have tickets to a concert and then it snows and you don't really want to go anymore. But because you bought the tickets, you feel like you have to go. So you go, even though you didn't really want to go. But the truth is the money's gone either way, whether you go to the concert or not. And in economics, they call that a sunk cost. And even though as an economist, so he had tickets, they tell this story in the book, he had tickets with a friend who was another economist to a concert. And the friend said, we have to go. And he said, we don't, it's a sunk cost. And the friend said, what can I tell you, we have to go. <laughs> the guy's an economist. <laughs> he knows all about this theory. And yet as a human, he felt this requirement to go to a concert he had paid money for. Whereas if you're given the tickets, so they did a whole study on this. If you're given the tickets, if you did not spend money on them, and then it snows and you don't want to go to the concert, you go, eh, whatever, it's, eh, we just won't go. And you don't even care. <laughs> and it's just this strange quirk. Like, why do people do stupid stuff? Well, it's amazing um, how he he discusses. Now, see. Now, here's Thaler. another one that relates to investing, though. Dan. OK, good, good. So this one's called the endowment effect. Once people own something, they become more attached to it. Mm -hmm. They become so attached that they're reluctant to part with them, even if selling them makes good economic sense. So. Mm -hmm. You see this, he's done studies, apparently you see this in like baseball teams, football teams, they will be reluctant to trade a player, even though they could get more than that player's worth in money for the player leaving. But they're always thinking like, well, what if, what if we keep this guy? What if he's amazing on the other team? Yeah. There's all this human psychology that comes into it, even though in pure rational economic terms, it's not the right decision to keep that person on the team. 
So I read that and I started thinking like, okay, if you own stock, if you own a company that you feel, as we always talk about, right, if you feel connected to, you love that company, you want to be part of it, that's why we bought the stock in the first place, it's got to be hard to give it up if it's time. Have you had that experience? Yeah, actually, I do have that experience. And it's particularly hard to give it up when something is going wrong with the story that you have. Right. Mm. So you have a story about why you want to own this company and about you invert- why you why you did buy it. Yeah. You why you did it. buy it. Absolutely. So I've got a story about the meaning, the moat, the margin of safety, the management and the event that put it on sale and why I love the values of the business. And then I invert the story to try to be sure I'm looking at the other side of this clearly. Right. And you mm. then rebut the inversion. <clears throat> And the result is an investment. Now you make the investment. And now as the time goes along, things are going to change in this company. And if the company's changes are are not good, in other words, management is coming in and saying, well, we expected this, but instead this other thing is happening and this is going to cause us to raise more money. We have to dilute the shareholders. We have to bring in more debt. There's a, there's a built-in bias to stay with this thing. And yeah, because you made the argument so well originally that you bought it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I've had companies where I bought in, the thing went up to where I thought it would go, and I sold it, I made a lot of money, and then I bought back into it. And I bought the- <laughs> I bought back into it because it went down. But wait went- a second, wait a second. So you like got out. Yeah. At a good time. Yeah. Because the story changed. Well, no, because it just got ridiculously high priced. But that's the story changing, right? The price okay, well, fair is enough. Yeah. ridiculously high. Right. And then and, and then, then But oh I see. But the problem was that you thought the under like the company itself, the price was ridiculously high, but the company itself was still a good buy. Right. Is that what you mean? Right. And then they started having problems. And then the story started changing. And the stock dro- dropped and dropped and dropped. But the I had this underlying bias to the old story. Hmm. I was kind of locked in to the old story in a way that was a little bit irrational, if you want to think of it like that. The, I, I couldn't overlay the new story enough to wipe out the old story. The old story was so good about this company that mm-hmm. the new story essentially was saying, yeah, now they're putting in more money into this plant. They're putting in more money into... Um, uh, oh, so this then, is Horsehead? Yeah, Horsehead. <laughs> and it and it's just a bias that I had that the overall story was still fabulous. Now, had I had the real story, you know, obviously things would have been vastly different. But I think the I mean, key thing is that you gotta you gotta go back and you gotta you gotta recognize that you have a bias to own this stuff that you've owned in the past or that you own currently because you know it well and you have a have a sense that it could do well. It's almost like you don't want to trade that player because he could do really great for that other team. Yeah, and of course, behavioral economists have another term for that, which is confirmation bias. That once you've confirmed your argument, you're you're on one side or the other, then all you start to see are more reasons that you're right. And your brain kind of automatically filters out reasons you might be wrong because you have a very strong interest in actually being right at that point. Well, I've Whereas got, before, 
you have either side going on. Yeah, and I've got one of those right now. Seritage is a, a company, SRG, that um, Buffett bought about 10% of, I think, with his own money, personal money, and which was owned by a bunch of hedge fund guys that I really respect. And it was spun off of Sears to have all the Sears real estate or a bunch of the Sears real estate. <clears throat> and the problem is that, I mean, this is a great story. They're converting $4 a square foot into $18 a square foot rental space by, you know, throwing out Sears and putting in Whole Foods. So, so these are the guys that own the stores that Sears are in, like they own the real estate. The yeah, Sears they own in, the real right? estate. So it's a real estate investment trust. And the, this, the good story is that Sears will gradually wind down and these guys will gradually rotate out of Sears stores and into much better paying tenants because these are A-list properties. They're in fabulous locations. And that's mm -hmm. always going to be a demand for them. So here's the inversion of the story. Yeah, well, not so fast, Bubba, because Amazon is killing the world of big box stores and malls are going down left and right. And, and, and the whole world is changing. <clears throat> you really don't want to be in a big box store. Um, and yet, of course, Amazon is just starting to open its own box stores. So yeah, who knows? Totally. Right. So you can invert that one. Yeah. And then you've got this um, this newest thing, which is that it looks like Sears is going down toward bankruptcy a lot faster than anybody thought. And because of that, one of my favorite investors to watch, Monash Pabrai, recently just sold off his Seritage Holdings. He's like, wow, the Sears could go down a lot quicker than we thought. And if it does, a, you know, half of what the revenue stream is for Seritage just goes away. They go into bankruptcy, right? They're not going to pay anybody anything, including their rent. And so that's going to punch a hole in Seritage by requiring that it go out and get loans or it's going to have to raise more equity in order to cover its obligation to Sears, which he has to pay, right? They owe about $1.5 So that creates a new part of the story. And I absolutely, I have this confirmation bias towards Seritage. I love it. My favorite investor in the world isn't getting out. Um, and I look at a Barron's article and it says, you know, the company is going to be fine in a couple of years. And I read more about it and it looks like it's going to be good. Might go through a bumpy time. And basically, Pabrai is saying, I'm going to get out now and probably buy back later if the price goes down, which it probably should. So I have this bias to just sit tight. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's yeah. working on me, this thing, this bias to sit tight. So, um, yeah, I know that this thing really exists. There's no question about it. Um, and what's I the think antidote? it's really, yeah, I mean, I don't know if there is an antidote. I think uh, the reason it's interesting to talk about this stuff is just to know that it exists. I mean, in a way, that's the antidote to just say, like, hold on. What about this situation is creating a confirmation bias for me? Yeah. Hold on. What about this situation is me like, I don't know, another phenomenon is like, anchoring on price like somebody throws out a price and all of a sudden anything above that is too high anything below that is cheap and you know it's only because somebody set the price originally and has nothing to do with reality something like that on a stock price or something mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so uh, just being aware of these things and uh and well, sort of it, running through some sort of behavioral checklist going like 
am I doing this? I don't know. I think that that's got to be the only antidote because these are just things that we all have as humans. Now, there's another antidote and Buffett uses it. And his antidote is the abominable no man, Charlie Munger. (laughs) And you you sort of need a Charlie Munger. We all need um, our Charlie Munger, you know, like I like to bounce ideas off of other investors that I respect. And we sort of have a rule, by the way, when we bounce it off, it's like you can't tell the person that you're buying this thing or that you really want to buy it. It's, you sort of have to remain kind of neutral when you when you pitch an idea and say, okay, okay well, what about what about Seritage? What do you think about it so far? Pabri is out. Um, I'm looking at it. You know, you can't you keep it on that level. You don't try to pitch your bias so much. And in other words, you're not trying to sell. Well, the that idea. in itself, that in itself <clears throat> is a good antidote. Yeah. And it's a really good antidote. And you push that out there. So you basically, that's what I'm going to do on this heritage thing. That's how I'm going to have uh, a way of looking at this is to talk, like I'm going to dig in deeper. I'm going to look at the numbers and just ask the what if uh, Sears goes down next year. Um, what does that do to the cash flow at Seritage? And what does that do to their obligations to Sears? And how would they correct that? Um, and And then I'm going to, kind of talk that over with other investors that I really respect who are also doing the work and say, okay, what am I missing here? What, what do you, what do you see is uh, a rebuttal to my argument that this looks like a good investment in spite of what's going on with Sears? Yeah. Yeah. And then, and that is hugely helpful. And that's of course the role that Charlie Munger plays is, is twofold. I mean, Buffett and Munger both play this role for each other. And that is to say, no, this is not a good idea. And here's why. Right. And that helps you very much because your your investing partner, not not to say you're in business together, but your investing partner is able to stand outside this thing because they don't have a confirmation bias. They haven't done all this work. They're just listening to the work and they're saying, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? Yeah. 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 Here's here's something you missed that doesn't make sense to me. And then. Because it's very easy to skip over those things in our own brains, and you just naturally fill in the holes. I'm positive there's another theory that explains that one. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. <laughs> um, and when and when you have to say it out loud, I actually find if you don't have the luxury of having an investing partner right there, a weird little trick that I've used is to just say it out loud, even to an empty room. And weirdly, I find that it's not as good, but I find that if I say it out loud, I tend to notice where I make those leaps Ah. because I can hear myself making the argument and I get to the leap and I go, oh, wait a second. That doesn't that doesn't flow. That doesn't work. Well, so maybe the key thing is to say it out loud. Maybe that's the really important thing is to just say it out loud, which takes us back to the concept of story, right? I think there are other people for whom writing it out is is really useful, and that's where they find those leaps. Maybe writing it out and sending it to somebody else, because then you know it's really going to get looked at. I'll tell you, the other antidote to this is to be sure you're staying inside your circle of competence. You know, stay in your canyon and stay away from those canyon walls and really work hard to try to know what you don't know. Like, that's very difficult. Like, we don't know what we don't know yeah. is is dangerous, right? So if we assume that we know it, then we can get ourselves into trouble. We've got to stay really tight into these narrow, narrow boundaries, these narrow niches 
that we're really digging into. So if you're digging into whole foods, you want to really stay deep in that. You want to get deep, deep so that you can answer these questions about whole foods as well, right? So whole foods is facing the fact that every grocery store on the planet is trying to come into their space, yeah. right? I mean, the whole they're facing the fact that companies like Kraft, which Buffett owns, and Mondelez and these and Pepsi and Coke, they have what are called the middle aisles of the grocery store, and nobody's going down the middle aisles. They're 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 going to the edges where the it's the fresh food and and the meat and the cheeses and all that's around the edges of the store. That's where people are going. The traffic is staying away from the middle aisles. And that's killing these guys because they need mm. people to go down those aisles. And so there's a there's a fundamental change going on here that's very, very supportive of what Whole Foods' mission is. And yet every store out there from Costco to Walmart is looking at their middle aisles drying up and thinking, man, how do we fix this? And you know when, you know when just one stupid suggestion that these guys actually thought about was what? to move the craft food out to the edge. Yeah, I can imagine that they thought of that. <laughs> hey, yo. But I think also with the the figuring out, you know, where the holes are, I, I think, and you said stay within your circle of competence. I think it, another really important part of it is to be okay with saying that I don't know the answer to something. I think a lot of the time... I feel like I have to make an answer, even if I just kind of make it up, you know, and it's like not the best answer. It's like, I just I feel like I have to for some reason. And that hides the fact that I don't actually know the answer. There may be and something very psychological about that. When If you ever travel into the certain parts of the world, like particularly third world countries for some reason, and ask directions from somebody on the street, they're <laughs> going to give you directions. They may not have any idea whatsoever where you're talking about but you're gonna get directions <laughs> to somewhere to a place uh, ask me how i know that <laughs> <laughs> i don't even want to yeah so let me let me come back to thaler because he is really fun to uh, to read and i'm looking forward to reading misbehaving completely i haven't got it all done um and then we'll, we'll sort of wrap up because I really want you to read Misbehaving Everybody. Thaler is at the University of Chicago, which is very interesting because he's basically saying that he has the radical notion that the central, the central concepts of, of our entire economic system and most importantly, our stock market, that central agent is a human being, which means somebody who is error prone, somebody who is likely to act in an irrational way. And we have this traditional assumption that all of these people in the stock market are very rational actors, and they're not. Th Thaler basically says, you know, these are not people like Spock who are just running around being automatons. They're, they're, they're actually real people. And it doesn't work any different in the stock market than it does buying and selling basketball tickets or trying to buy a clock radio at a, at a flea market. It's we all have biases. We all have, you know, we have decisions that are based on something not particularly rational, like we discussed. We all so, have emotional stuff going on. Uh, I mean, yeah. all the stuff you and I talk about all the time with people like fund managers dealing with short term outlooks. Yep. Like 
maybe they are having a divorce or they're about to be fired. Like, people have stuff going all on. All this stuff. And Thaler, Thaler is what – here's the beauty of talk about all this stuff going on is Thaler is at the University of Chicago where F- Richard Fama, who developed e- efficient market hypothesis, is still there. Hmm. So these guys have to be at war. I mean, they are taking two radically different approaches and essentially – Thaler is coming up with something that's blowing the wheels out from under this very, very powerful, efficient market hypothesis. And I, I love the guy for it. It's really bold that you can come out that strong against a, an embedded paradigm right in your own backyard. So I strongly recommend that we all read Misbehaving and anchor ourselves in some real facts about the way the market works, because we need to remember that we can beat these guys. We just have to be patient. We have to buy companies when we know we're going to sell them for more money down the road and get that free lottery ticket that Manesh Babrai talks about, and we can get wealthy. So I think yeah, that's so it I for today. Let's add um, misbehaving to our invested book club list. Definitely. And uh, maybe talk about it in a month or so, maybe a yeah. little. All right. When everybody's had a chance to, give to you dig guys in. Some time. Yeah. But we'll definitely announce it when we're about to, because I haven't read it yet. But this was actually, um, you know, I wasn't quite sure if behavioral economics really had much to do with what we're doing, because it seems so much broader. And actually, it has a lot to do with what we're doing, especially because we as individual investors deal so much with our emotions and our fears and our psychology. I think it's right on the money, actually. I do too. I think we should we should uh, really take some time and um, and read Thinking Fast or Slow, which is down in the weeds. Yeah, read... it's, it's a it's a slow read that one. I don't feel like I want to add that one to our book. That's club a little list. bit. That's a, I'm not sure. I read that before I read Michael Lewis's book about that book. And yeah, I've read parts of it. It's I yeah, mean it's a very it's a good book, book, but it's, it's a, good, a very yeah. good book. But um, but yeah, it's a little slow. Uh, But I will also add that on YouTube, Google has a great series of talks with various illustrious minds. I think they can just get these guys to come to Google. So they do. And they videotape it and put it up on YouTube. And you can find Richard Thaler and you can find Daniel Kahneman and you can find um, Tversky. Is that his name? Amos Tversky? Tversky, yeah. So look them up on YouTube if you're interested. It's an easier way to get into all their stuff without... um, pulling out a, a 300 page book. I did not know that Google was brought, was putting those up. Yeah. And how do, how do lot, we find them? We just go, we go to YouTube and we go Google lectures. Or um, what? I will tell you next time exactly how to get to them. Okay. Yeah. She's going to keep like it that. a secret for a week and then we're all going to find out. Yeah. Right, cool. I don't want to annoy you with typing on the computer right now. All right. Well, it's I'm, time I'm to go thinking play. of done? you. I'm being considerate. <laughs> I've been trying to stop us now for about two minutes. Let's stop talking. (laughs) Because it's time to go play. I feel like I'm getting pulled off the stage with like a giant hook right now. No, you're not. But it's definitely time to stop. So we're going to talk to you guys all next week. And until then, time to go play. See ya. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Hey, thanks for listening to Invested. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Head over to investedpodcast.com for our show notes and a special offer on how the podcast listeners can attend my three-day transformational investing workshop for free, where we just teach the heck out of you for three straight days. We don't sell anything. 
and we get you a scholarship to come to it for free. So come on over there and take a look at that. And by the way, as our lawyers want me to say, everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion, my opinion's right, and is not to be taken as investing advice because I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. So this podcast is just for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it. So until next time, time to go play.